0: Our reading today is from Nehemiah, and it starts in the last verse of chapter 9, verse 38. Once we've done that last verse, we skip lots of verses, and then we go to verse 28 of chapter 10. I could read the names, if you want some names, I could give you a try. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, And our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And then there's a whole list of all the people who are affixing their seals to it and signing things. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Faithful God, we just ask that you might speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, Let's look at Nehemiah. As Susan said, we're at the last in our series from this book, and the drama continues to unfold. It's better than Netflix. Not that I do Netflix, but I thought it might make me look young and trendy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. So let's look at the story so far. Many of the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem from exile. And when I say returned, many of them would have been born in exile. It wasn't like they were going back. there had been 70 years, I think. And so many of them, including Nehemiah, would have been born in exile and not in Jerusalem or in Israel. So we have this Persian-born Israelite, Nehemiah, in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And he hears that despite the fact that they've gone back, the walls of Jerusalem, of this, this fantastic city, are still in a state of disrepair. And nothing is being done. So you might remember from a previous talk, he mourns, he weeps, he prays, and then he acts. And with the support of his employer, King Artaxerxes, wouldn't you love that for a name? He goes to Jerusalem and sets about organising the rebuilding of the city walls. And he does a great job. He deals with the opposition to the project, as well as challenging some of the behaviours of his fellow Jews. And 52 days later, the walls are complete. Then in chapter 8, we heard about an assembly being held with Ezra the priest reading and teaching from the book of the law for a very long time. There's a festival that involves living in temporary shelters for seven days and more reading from the book of the law. And then in chapter 9, which we should have had last week, but we had a, a little break with Bishop Walter Toro here, Still thinking about building, though, if you remember. But last week, it should have been chapter 9. And in there, there's another big assembly at the end of this festival of of living in the temporary shelters. And the assembly begins with fasting, with the wearing of sackcloth and the putting dust on their heads. That sense of humility and, and needing God's forgiveness. They stood and read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day and then spent another quarter of a day in confession and worship. And if you read chapter 9, and and I just encourage you to do that, most of the content is a prayer of praise and confession to the Lord of heaven and earth. The prayer recognises the mighty acts of the law and the not-so-mighty acts of his people. God's power, God's provision, God's rescue, God's punishment, the Israelites' arrogance, rebellion, and wickedness, all laid out, a merciful God and a stiff-necked people. I don't know what a stiff-necked people means, but it's just a picture, isn't it? You can see that picture of these stiff-necked people. Arrogant and rebellious. In this short history that they remember in in chapter nine, the people recognise and acknowledge without any excuse their own and their ancestors' wrongdoing and wrong behaviour, and at the same time recognising the graciousness and the mercy of God. We read in chapter 9, verse 17: but you are a forgiving God gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. They have, and we have, a patient, a merciful, and a forgiving God. And so we come to today's passage. Many TV series have a a catch-up section, don't they, at the start of each episode. So last night even, previously on casualty, and I've just lost any young and trendy points that I might have had. (laughs) On iPlayer sometimes there's a button that you can press to skip this bit, presumably for the binge-watchers who've only just seen the previous episode. But the chapter that we're looking at today would make no sense without the catch-up. What happens in chapter 10 is a response to all that has gone before, especially what they've been reminded of in the last two chapters, the reading of the law and the reminder of their history and God's faithfulness. And so our reading began, you might remember, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. They've been brought up short. They've come to their senses Their eyes have been opened and the reset button is being pressed. So led by the leaders, the Levites, the priests, all the people bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God and carefully obey all his commands, regulations and decrees. I think they're serious about what they're promising They have been strenuously reminded of who they are, the chosen people of God. They've been strenuously reminded of what God has done for them, their rescue from slavery, God's provision, God's leading them to the promised land, and even the punishment of exile that's been part of bringing them back to himself. They've been strenuously reminded of his character, his love, his graciousness, his forgiveness, his compassion, his mercy, his patience and his faithfulness. And of course, they've been strenuously reminded of their own shortcomings, their own failings. So, in response to all of this, all the people make a strong commitment, a binding agreement to come back to God's ways. And then the chapter goes on to identify some specific promises that they make, areas that they had clearly let slip and that they needed to get back on track with. Let's look at these. Firstly, they promise not to give their daughters in marriage to other nations or to take other nations' daughters for their sons. Israel was God's chosen people, a nation set apart to be holy, to follow in God's ways, to obey his commandments. Through intermarriage, God's people were being drawn away from God and were taking on the values and activities, even the false gods and the abhorrent worship rituals of the surrounding nations. They were losing their identity as God's people and failing to walk with him as they should. And on the whole, these marriages probably weren't even love matches. In a time of arranged marriages, where the daughters in particular had little say, one commentator writes, the social climb was tempting in these trying days, and marriage offered an attractive ladder. So this promise about marriage was really a commitment to holiness, a commitment to wholeheartedly love the Lord their God and to walk in his ways and not to be drawn away from him. Their second promise was to stop bending the rules about the Sabbath and to adhere to the commands to give the land a Sabbath rest every seven years and to cancel any debts every seven years. God had ordained the Sabbath day as a holy day A day of rest when no work was to be undertaken at all. A day set apart for God. But his people had found a loophole. Don't we all just love a loophole? It was, of course, only Israel that couldn't sell goods on the Sabbath. Therefore, they reasoned, it was okay to buy from foreign traders. It wasn't okay. Such activity might not have been against the letter of the law, but it was definitely against the spirit. The Sabbath rule of rest was ordained for the good of all humanity and for the good of the land, not just on a whim that God thought this would, I don't know, be something he'd ask people to do just for the sake of them doing it. There was reasoning behind this commandment benefit came with sticking to it. God does know best. Then the final promises of the chapter are around giving, that word we're not supposed to talk about, and their responsibility towards the upkeep of the temple, their faithfulness to the offerings required of them, and their commitment to tithing. And so they promise to pay an annual temple tax to cover the cost of of worship. Churches don't run themselves. The various offerings that were part of that worship, they even promised to work out a rota as who's going to provide the wood to burn on the altar, but I don't think they had church suite.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's just for people on rotors know what I'm talking about there. They promised to bring in their tithes, the tenth of what they produced to give to the Levites who had no land of their own. And not just any tenth. As commanded, the promise was that it would be the first tenths, the first fruits, the best of what they produced, not the leftovers. So what? We've read the Bible passage, we've had a go at understanding what it meant at the time, So what does it say to us? How do we respond? I think there are two big ideas in this passage. Firstly, the binding agreement was made after an extended time of Bible reading and study, after a seven-day religious festival, after a significant looking back at their history, and after a reminder of all that God had done for them and all that they knew of him they did a review sometimes I wish I kept a journal I think I've said this before I'm not a detailed person but I wish I kept a journal and that had written down the answers to prayer all the times that I felt that God has led me all the times that I know he has blessed me and provided for me I'm so grateful for the difference that God has made in my life since I first met Jesus 37 years ago. But often I forget. Often I take it all for granted and lose sight of the privilege that it is to be called a child of God. I've taken some time this week and, and just jotted down a few things. that that reminds me. I've asked God to show me where he's been at work and and written it down so that I can come back to it to remember and hopefully update. It was a faith-affirming exercise. And still on the first point, I wonder if as 21st century Christians we've got a little bit too personal about the gospel and about our faith. It's good to ask, how does God want me to respond to this? But we're a community of believers. As Bishop Walter was saying last week, we are living stones built together to form God's church. So maybe the scope for us looking back and seeing as a church where God has been at work, where he has provided for us, where he has blessed us, And where we have let him down. I don't know how we do this. It's just a thought. But my second point then, so secondly, is looking back, those who made this agreement looked not just at where God had provided, but they looked at where they had fallen short. They recognised their own arrogance and sinfulness and how much they had failed to keep God's command. And so they made promises based on the specific areas which they presumably they knew they needed to address first. It doesn't seem to take much to drift away from the holiness of God, the holiness that God asks us to be. Think of the verse in 1 Peter, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so like those who'd returned from exile, we too are called to live holy lives, lives of worship and obedience to our God. One of those commands Jesus commanded us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind. And to love our neighbour as ourselves. And so as we evaluate how we are doing at keeping those commandments. And as individuals and maybe as a church. Maybe we need to look at the things we need to work on. These things might be different to the promises that were made by Ezra and Nehemiah and the whole assembly. Or maybe there's some similarities How are we doing living lives worthy of the Lord? How are we doing at resisting the temptations and practices and values of the world that would draw us away from God? How is our Sabbath keeping? Or how is our giving to the work of the church? Or maybe there's something else that God is putting his finger on at the moment. It's not a bad thing to press the reset button. It's good to identify and then commit to working on those areas in which we fall short of the holiness of God. But it isn't easy. Sadly, and and I don't know about you, but I find it too easy to settle for living a life that is less than godly. The chapter we heard ends on what seems like a positive note. The assembly promises, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. I'm sure they mean it. But, spoiler alert, chapter 13, verse 11, we can read how Nehemiah, having returned to Susa for a while, comes back to the temple and finds things are not as they promised. And he writes, So I rebuke the officials and ask them, Why is the house of God neglected? It didn't take long, did it? But before I judge these people who are going to not neglect and have neglected, before I judge, I'm reminded of how many times I've come back from a weekend away for a conference or even a Sunday service, determining to be faithful in my Bible reading, in my prayer, in my evangelism, in my holiness, only to be back where I started within a few weeks, on a good day, a few days, or even hours on a bad. The title that was given to this talk on the rotor was Confidence, and I spent quite a lot of time, in fact, I even messaged Ben, but he ignored me, asking why. You did?
0: Did I? Yeah.
1: messaged me about things I know, that's it. I, do you know when you message a vicar? If you've got four questions, send four messages. Always, always the way to go. Sorry, Ben. The title that was given to this talk on the rotor was confidence. And I spent quite a lot of time wondering why. Why that title? I might have got it wrong, but the word confidence means the feeling or belief that one can have faith or rely on someone or something. One can have faith and rely on someone. The events leading up to this binding agreement had greatly increased the people's confidence in the God who had called them the God who had rescued them, the God who had provided. It's also gone some way to increasing their confidence that God's ways were best and that following them gave them their best life. Their best life was one lived in obedience to God's commands. They could rely on God. So maybe it was doomed to fail when they made this binding agreement and their confidence transformed from God to themselves and what they were going to do. There was a, a second reading prescribed for today too. I, I didn't have it read out earlier, but I'm going to read it now. Two verses from Jesus' last meal with his disciples. Matthew 26 verses 26 and 27. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, The forgiveness of sins. Maybe we're doomed to fail when we put our confidence in our own abilities to live for God, when we try to please Him in our own strength. We need God's Spirit to help us, we need Jesus to help us. These verses from Matthew remind us, the communion service that we had last week reminds us to keep remembering what God has done for us. And they remind us that we are forgiven even when we fail at being faithful. So as I said earlier, it's not a bad thing to press the reset button sometimes. It's good to identify and then to commit to working on those areas in which we fall short of the holiness of God. But it's when our confidence is in Jesus when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, when it's him we really depend on, then we're far more likely to get it right, and far more likely to be living our best life. Amen.